0: great victory you are our mighty shield our very grateful lord Lord, we are incredibly grateful incredibly grateful lord for your grace to make us a part of your victory and lord we pray that as we open your word today and we look at that more clearly god please please lord please go far beyond what your words can do to, to open our hearts to give us the strength through the Spirit to comprehend what are the riches of our inheritance and the great power at work in us. Lord, thank you, Lord. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated, and if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. We are continuing our series on kind of what church membership is about here at Providence, and as we introduced last week, we're doing this through a series of affirmations and denials just as a means of being explicit and clear and communicating not only here's what we are, but here's what we're not, and here's what we aspire to, and here's what we aspire to avoid, and so on and so forth. Uh, There's only a few books that I consider to be sort of like once-in-a-decade books, and I'm reading one of those that was written actually in 1996, I'm just now getting around to reading it, uh, by D.A. Carson called The Gagging of God. And in that book, there's a chapter, chapter 6, I think, where he writes, he, the, the title of the chapter is "When On Drawing Lines When Drawing Lines is Rude. And he just talks about the need to be explicit and clear, both what's inside the box and what's outside the box and so on and so forth. And that's what we're attempting to do with this approach to our membership material. So last week we had the following set of affirmations and denials. We said, we want to be a God-centered church. And, uh, and then it said, we, the denial was, we do not want to be a man-centered church. Uh, the second set of affirmations and denials for this week is, we want to be a church which proves the power and wisdom of God. We don't want to be a church which merely proves the power and wisdom of man. And I'll tell you what. That is actually a tall order. It is a tall order to live a life, let alone live a life together, that doesn't eventually, in one way or another, wind up sort of leaning on our own strength and our own understanding. It's really hard to live a life in full dependence of the power of God, especially when life doesn't demand it. When when, when what appears before us, circumstantially, doesn't seem to require... Divine strength at all. And this this idea, this aspiration that we want to, as a church, we've said before we want to be a little church with a, the big God. Not that we want to be a little church, but we always want our God to be much bigger than anything else happening within our church. So, this desire to be a church which proves the power and wisdom of God and not a church which merely shows the power and wisdom of man, that's a tall order. That's, that's, that's an easy thing to say. It's really, actually, a really hard thing to do. I hope you maybe noticed how hard that is to do in your own life, uh, how hard it is to do in your own life. Look, there's this pattern in the book of Acts that I haven't gotten to speak about yet as we're working our way through Acts normally. Um, basically, every time the gospel goes into a new place or to a new people, it is accompanied by what Luke by what Luke calls uh, a miraculous signs, right? So, Every time Luke describes the gospel going into a new place, there are these miraculous signs, and these signs beg for an explanation, and the explanation offered is always the gospel. Right? Like you, We've been through enough of Acts where that should sound familiar to you. Every time the, gospel, every time a, a, the preacher goes into a city, um, signs are done, mirac- miraculous signs are done, and those miraculous signs require an explanation. The explanation is the gospel, and people are saved. But what's really interesting coming up, we're not quite there yet in Acts, but we will be soon, is during Paul's first ministry, missionary journey, that pattern, that pattern is what we see. But then on his second missionary journey, he goes back through all of the cities. And this time, you don't see a mention of any miracles. And, and, and you wonder, well, why is that? Instead, all you see from Luke when he goes back into these places is just discussion of the Word of God being preached and the church growing. You're like, well, why is that? Well, I think this is not a... uh, I think that one explanation that, that fits with Ephesians, actually, is that the church is now the miracle on display for the community. The church is the living, tangible miracle. And... By this series of affirmations and denials, that's really what we're talking about. We want to be a miraculous thing, not a thing that can be merely explained by clever planning or uh, clever advertising or meeting felt needs, per se. We want to be something that is miraculous, that only has one fundamental explanation, and that being the wisdom and power of God. So Paul wants this, too. Paul wants this for the Ephesian church. And so in chapter one, he prays for them, right? We read this last week. Let me read it again. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? He wants them to know of the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward them who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul wants the Ephesian church to know and live out the power of God. So what does he do? He prays. Okay, check. What's the next thing he does? He reminds. He reminds. This is very interesting. He turns from this prayer of, I want you to see the power of God at work for you. I want you to really believe that's true. Pivots into chapter 2 and says what? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verse 11 he says, Now remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at the time separated from Christ. What is Paul's strategy and what is our strategy for being a place that knows and displays the power and wisdom of God? Well, the first one is prayer. We have to pray that God does this for us, but then we have to act in accordance with our prayers and his tangible strategy, other than prayer, is the act of reminding them of where they were before Christ saved them. Now, we have such a disregard for the act of reminding. We we, we have such a disregard for the act of repetition. In Acts 17, uh, Paul, Paul goes and speaks to a group of intellectuals who it says in the text, gathered constantly to talk about something new and he shares the gospel with them and i you know i'm just going to assume that some of the people were saved and when they were saved they were in for a rude awakening to realize that a huge percentage of the christian experience in particular the christian experience in the worship gathering has to do about talking about the same thing over and over and over again. Namely, that Jesus has come and died for us and was raised and we have been placed into Christ. And imagine these Athenians who are used to new things, new things, new things, new things. They start attending Sunday worship and it's, we're going to talk about the cross again. We're going to talk about the cross again. We have a... um, we have a disrespect for for the act of remembrance. We We think that everything that's important is lying ahead, that we don't know, and we really don't have a category for just the need to be reminded over and over again. So before I go into Paul's act of reminding here, I just want to show you that this is a super biblical thing, and remembering is actually a huge part of the Christian life, and it's a huge part of where the power for the Christian life comes from. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we're told that it's possible for us to become fruitless and ineffective in our faith. We can stop growing in virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection. And Peter says that the reason that we stop growing in these things, he says, uh, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed of his former sins. See the role of remembrance and just the, the putting on of growth in every Christian virtue. To put it negatively, when you forget this simple truth that you were cleansed from your sins, you are in the first step to becoming unfruitful. I was thinking this week about just how a church becomes a dead church. Talk about this more next week. Um, how does a church become a dead church? I think in one way or another, the explanation is is that for some reason or another. A church becomes a dead church when they think the gospel is beneath them. They think the gospel is beneath them. Now, some churches become a dead church because they think that the gospel is too crude, meaning this idea of a suffering Savior and an angry God, angry at sin, that it's too crude. And so they they rise up to a level of intellectualism that says that this gospel is meaningless and it's, it's an old tale for an older time and it doesn't have any value anymore. So they... They think the gospels beneath them intellectually, but you know a lot of other churches that are dead would say that the gospels not beneath them intellectually. They'd sing the old rugged cross every Sunday and so on and so forth. They think the gospels beneath them relationally. Another way a church can die is is to say, you know, I know this whole forgiveness thing is rooted in the gospel, and I know it says that if I'm supposed to forg- that if I'm forgiven, I'm supposed to forgive others, and that if I don't forgive others, I might not myself be forgiven, and so on. I know the gospel gives me a template for relationship, but I'm not going to listen to it because my relationships are more complicated than those prescriptions. And there are just all sorts of different ways that churches can die by thinking that the gospel is beneath them. So so this act of remembering from whence we came, as Peter says, is the key to all Christian virtue. But I want to show you one more text where this is on display. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells a Pharisee a very simple parable. And he says, Imagine there's a very wealthy man who made loans to a couple of people. Now, I've done the monetary conversions for you. So, both loans are significant. One is for the equivalent of 50 days' wages, and the other is for an equivalent of 500 days' wages. Jesus is telling a Pharisee a parable. He says, There's this wealthy man, he makes out two loans. One loan is for 50 days wages. The other is for 500 days wages. And then Jesus says, this wealthy man brought both of these debtors to him and said, you're both forgiven your debts. You owe me nothing. And then Jesus asked the Pharisee, which one of these debtors will love the rich man more? And the Pharisee, it's even, it's even in the language you can see him not wanting to admit defeat. But he, he, said, he says, I suppose, like he won't, he won't give it all the way to Jesus. He's like, I suppose the one who was forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus says, You're correct. And He says, He who's forgiven much will love much. And he who's forgiven little will love little. So the whole key, friends, to our love for God and our love for one another is our ability to remember how much we have been forgiven. So this act of remembering is actually just one of fundamentals of the Christian life. And we make no apology, in fact, it's a part of our strategy to repeat things over and over again, because the truth is, is that I I guarantee you all of us walk in on Sunday morning being less familiar with the gospel than we were when we walked out of here on Sunday afternoon the previous week. It It just doesn't stick with us like we need it to. We understand, I, this idea of remembering is actually exceedingly obvious to us if you take it out of the theological realm. So uh, I have this big floppy golden noodle named Winston, and I used to get him to be able to, he used to climb up on my lap in in my recliner, and he would sit on my lap, and it was kind of comical, and I liked it. And uh, unfortunately, a few months ago, he went to jump off the recliner, and he got his leg stuck in the crack in the footrest. You know, the footrest was entirely extended. He got his skinny little leg stuck there, and he freaked out, and he starts trying to get out. And it just, like, it's just causing him a great deal of pain. I really thought he might break his leg. Just He was thrashing around with his leg caught in this little crack. And he's so big, and I couldn't lean forward to help him, because then that would just cut his leg off, you know. There's a lot of weight behind that motion. And so, so we were all just stuck. And my wife was in the other room, and she had no idea what was going on, but she assumed I did something wrong. She literally just ran into the room yelling at me. <laughs> I haven't forgotten that. I remember. But the point of the story, <laughs> the point of the story is, is that to this day, that was probably six months ago, to this day, Winston will let me pet him. He will also lay in that chair, but he will not have anything to do with me and the chair at the same time. It, it probably never will. Like it's just like he just can't bring himself to do that anymore, and I say that to say that honestly, you know how, how you know how fundamental memory is in framing your opinions of people. If anyone's ever hurt you, think about that for a minute. You know, we do have a tendency to disrespect the power of memory. I'm telling you that especially when it applies to theology and to church and pastors come up on stage and they feel like they have to say something new or novel or say it in a new way because people are so, so frisky with repetition. But you know full well that when someone hurts you, it's hard to ever move on. That That memory defines the way you see that person. And, and, and the, the great challenge, of course, in Christianity is to, is to get past that. That's not okay. Because we've hurt God and He, he forgave us. But you, you get to wondering, okay, we know that memory has this incredible power. Uh, when someone hurts us, like it frames our opinion of the person indefinitely. But what about when someone helps us? Why, why does that frame our opinion of a person indefinitely? I don't think to the same degree. I think that's because we're we have a a gratitude problem. Um, But that's the idea of Paul's strategy here. He he prays that they know the power of God, and then he goes to remind them of the greatest single example that any of them have of the power of God in their own lives. And that's why he goes from, I want you to know the power of God, to in chapter two, verse one, You were dead. You were dead. John Stott, back in 1959, he wrote a little commentary on Ephesians titled God's New Society. And He wrote this, It is important to set this paragraph in its context. We have been considering Paul's prayer, verses 15 through 23, chapter 1, that his readers' inward eyes might be enlightened by the Holy Spirit to know the implications of God's call to them, the wealth of his inheritance which awaits them in heaven, and above all, the surpassing greatness of his power which is available for them meanwhile. Of this power, God has given a supreme historical demonstration by raising Christ from the dead and exalting him over all the powers of evil. But he has given a further demonstration of it by raising and exalting us with Christ and so delivering us from the bondage of death and evil. This paragraph, and he's speaking of chapter 2, this paragraph then is really a part of Paul's prayer that they... And we might know how powerful God is. How can I help you to know that God is powerful? How can I help you know that so that you will live like God is powerful? Well, Paul shows me the way. The way to show you that God is powerful is to help you to remember what you were before He saved you. That's why repetition of the gospel is so essential. It overflows and energizes every Christian virtue. And when we want to live as a church together in a way that demonstrates the power of God and not just fall into the autopilot of doing things in our own strength, we have to use this strategy to look back and say, I know God's powerful and His power is for me. Because I can look back, I can remember and say, I was dead. I was dead, and he saved me. These two words in the Greek, the word for trespass and the word for sin, have slightly different meanings. So when he says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, in verse 1, it seems that he's trying to give a comprehensive explanation or a comprehensive account of human evil. The word trespass is sort of like a false step involving either the crossing of a known boundary or the deviation of a path. And the word sin, hamartia, is just the word that means missing a mark or fail, falling short of a standard. Together, these two words basically encompass all sin. They encompass sins of omission. That's the stuff we're supposed to do that we didn't do. And it encompasses sins of commission. That's the stuff that we're supposed to do and we did. Uh, Really, really, we are doubly dead. We are dead in our sins, and we are dead in our trespasses. And and the key to to this is just to understand the illustration that I've used for years now is that when Paul talks about our spiritual death, it's very important that we take that to mean death. The way to think about this is, potential ways to think about salvation the one is, is that you were you were in a lake and you were drowning and you were slapping the water and gasping for air and Jesus rode out in an incarnational lifeboat and he threw you a line and you grabbed the line and he pulled you into the boat and you're like thanks Jesus I really needed that that's often how the gospel is presented but Paul is clear here that's not the way the gospel actually works. You weren't drowning in the middle of the lake, and you didn't grab a hold of anything. You were floating face down as a spiritual corpse, and Jesus came to you, and he pulled you out of the water, and he breathed new life into you. That's, that's what spiritual death is. It, it, it implies, as we see later in, in chapter 2, this, this sense of, I did nothing. Whereas the other version, you grabbed the rope. You kept yourself afloat until Jesus could get there. You know, It's a, it's a completely different accounting of how we wind up in Christ. And this accounting, the one that Paul gives here, gives all the glory to God. And it's real clear, because Paul says later on, this was done this way so that none could boast. Well, this is extremely important if you're going to believe in God's power. It's extremely important to say, He saved me. I was doubly dead. And he saved me from my sins and my trespasses. But not only were we doubly dead, we were triply deceived. Sometimes I type a word and I'm surprised Spellcheck accepts it. And triply, I wasn't sure triply was really a word, but uh, Apple says it is. Paul goes further into the darkness when he describes our captivity to three forces of darkness. So our spiritual state is bound to what some theologians sometimes refer as, to as the infernal triad, which sounds like the title of a video game. The infernal triad. Or another way that theologians talk about it is the unholy trinity. And what they mean by that are three forces that are working together to keep people dead. The world the flesh, and the devil. That's the theological recipe for the unholy trinity. And you see this unholy trinity, this infernal triad, actually at work in our text. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. He says in verse 1, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, in which, and then in verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So you've got the three components of the infernal triad working here. You have, you have following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. You have, uh, you have lived in the passions of your flesh. That's, that's the flesh. And then you have at the beginning, in which you once walked following the course of, of this world. That's the world. Here's the thing, as we as we really dive deeply into remembering what we were when God saved us. Each one of these things has enough power to keep you damned. Okay? So the world is powerful enough to keep you from God. The devil is powerful enough to keep you from God. The flesh is powerful enough to keep you from God. In fact, in Matthew 13... Jesus tells the parable of the sower and he says that the ground falls on these four places and, and only one of the places bears fruit. And he describes these three places where the, where the word of God fell on the heart and it did not bear fruit. And one of those places is dominated by the devil. It says the seed falls on a person's heart and the devil confuses their mind so they don't understand it. Another one of the pieces of soil is dominated by the world. Uh, the seed falls in that person's heart and, and it takes some root but then the world pushes back with tribulation and persecution, and the seed doesn't take root. And then, in the third place, the seed falls; it falls, and and the seed doesn't take the seed doesn't grow there because the person has a love for pleasure and the deceitfulness of riches. And so, any one of these three things—the world, flesh, the devil—will be enough to keep you from being saved. And Paul's saying, "You've got a problem. You've got you've got all three working against you. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And that's presented in Ecclesiastes as a positive thing, but we may apply it to this passage in a negative way and say that we have been ensnared, enslaved, prior to coming to Christ by a, a, a three-stranded cord that is simply unbreakable in natural ways. The world is persuasive. The flesh, the flesh is compelling. The devil is powerful. And what's even worse is they all work together. Uh, they, they all work together. It's as, it's as if there are three forces of darkness whispering in our ear to keep us from belief. And if one of them temporarily fails to hold us, another comes in. Today, last this week, it wasn't a especially fun exercise, but I went through a list of people or experiences in my life where someone came close to salvation and then we not was not saved. And uh and some of them died, right? Like there was a young man who started attending my youth group years ago and uh he didn't know Christ, but he was open about that. He's like, I kinda of thinking about this stuff, and we had some talks and he was coming to things pretty regularly he came from a very affluent family and uh his parents were unbelievers and they were really worried that he would fall into this whole Jesus thing and not keep up with his grades and and their plan for his life you know um and so they actually told him like you need to stay away from those Jesus people like you can still go to stuff that they do uh, cuz we did a lot of fun stuff but but um but like but like you just need to not take this too far and uh Sure enough, he kind of reacted in that way. He kind of drew back. He was there a little bit, not there sometimes, and just was always a little bit more distant. And he died in a jet ski accident like, like a month after his parents told him to do that. You know, th- this idea that there are these, these forces that are keeping people from coming to Christ, like it really should stun us when we think about it. For instance, you know, you could have someone questioning the viability of their own flesh or the viability of their own appetites. Let's say, like, this is a real thing. Someone's wholeheartedly committed to the hookup culture. They're young, they're single, they're attractive enough, and uh, they're just, like, fully on board, right? But they notice, they notice, like, you know, after these exchanges, I feel empty, I feel sad. And they basically... The flesh stops persuading them, at least temporarily, like it had previously. They see some holes in the flesh's argument. Let's put it that way. So they start, they start thinking, you know, maybe there's not, this isn't all there's cracked up to be. Maybe there's something else. Maybe this isn't right. And just as he's thinking that, he starts getting a series of texts from his friends who are all celebrating his latest conquest. And now he's like, well, but there's this other reason to do this because my friends think it's cool and they think I'm cool because I do this. And now you can see how the flesh, even if the flesh were to give out for a second, the world would jump right in. There's people that, you know, they sit in the church on Sunday morning and they actually think to themselves quietly, maybe I'm not actually a believer and maybe they're not. And the, the, the persuasion, uh, you know, the, the lies they tell themselves are starting to strip away. And But then... Maybe their phone rings, or maybe here's here's an idea. They're thinking, you know, maybe I'm not a Christian, but then they think, what if? What if everybody like, what if I had to tell everybody that I wasn't a Christian? Like, what would people think of me? And so you can see how like these three forces kind of work together in tag team fashion, so that even if one person were to get clear of one of those at least temporarily, the others would tag right in and continue the deception, and I really just want you to see here that there are a million ways you could have stayed dead in your sins and trespasses. Everybody starts there and almost everybody winds up staying there forever. So what is Paul doing when he says, I want you to know the power of God. I want you to know that God's powerfully at work with you. And then he goes to tells you you were dead. Well, that's That's the greatest demonstration of power there is. Nothing else God will ever do in your life will require as much power, if we're measuring such things, than raising you from double death and triple deception. Paul says, if you believe this, if you believe God did this for you, then you could take that information and apply it into your present and into your future. So the third, the third idea of this text is that we were doubly dead and triply deceived, but we were infinitely delivered. Years ago, this will not surprise you that I did this, but years ago I attended a lecture on monsters and why they appear in pop culture as they do, and specifically it was seeking to analyze the question of why monsters have certain cultural moments, why one monster is popular in one decade and another monster is popular in another decade and so on. And it started with the 1950s, and it said, you know, aliens were really a thing then. And it traced that to uh, Cold War paranoia. And it said, you know, we had this this fear that technology was going to destroy the world, and we also had this great xenophobic fear of uh, Russians invading and so on and so forth. And so that was sort of what was behind all the alien monsters in the 1950s. And then in the 1970s, there was this really hyped-up fear over overpopulation. And so guess what most of the monsters were in the 1970s? Many of you were not alive then. Children. There was a whole decade where the monsters in movies were kids. And, uh, and you could go on and on and on. But that lecture, it stayed with me It was years ago. And so when about a decade ago, zombies became the thing, I kind of thought, I wonder if there's a reason for that. I wonder if there's a reason for zombies having a cultural moment. Maybe subconscious or maybe just God allowing that to... Take place and it's like, well, what is a zombie? Well, it's a soulless human being or something like that. And it's, it's a mindless horde of consumers driven by their appetite. <laughs> and uh, friends, this is not a, this is not an over-contextualization, over-contextualization or stretch at all to say that, man, if there's ever a zombie text in the Bible, it's Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. You were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. Following the course This world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work at the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so you've got the world, the flesh, and the devil in this sort of zombie picture. You've got soulless consumers living for the passions of their flesh, driven by a herd mentality, i.e. the world, driven by supernatural darkness, i.e. the devil, and, You know the thing I hate. I really don't like zombie movies. I don't like zombies. I don't like zombie movies. I'm against it all. One of the things I really hate is that is that in these shows, the heroes, the heroes are merciless toward the zombies. You say, well, yeah, that's what you do. Why? Why? The the, the whole the whole problem the whole. The whole circumstance of the, of the story is built around creating an excuse to be merciless to something that looks like a human being. That's why I'm against it. But I bring all that up to say that you've got actual zombies in this text. It's people who don't know Christ. They are dead in their sins and trespasses in which they once walked, consumed by the appetites of their flesh, following the course of darkness, following this herd mentality, and God is rich in mercy toward them. This week I was reading at the end of the gospel in the post-resurrection story of Thomas. I think Thomas was the last disciple to believe. He says, unless I see the hands, the scars in the hands, and put my finger in his side, I will not believe. And eight days after he said that, Jesus appears to him and says to Thomas, here you go. Touch my hand, touch my side. And Thomas responds, my Lord and my God, and Jesus says You believe because you saw. Blessed are those who will believe without seeing. And such a that's such a, a hidden moment of Christ's confidence. He's looking forward into the future and saying, Thomas, millions of people will believe in me who have never touched my side. That's beautiful. But there's this, this other piece of that I, I think is is relevant to this discussion, and that is that I think we're all Thomases in some degree we don't We, we, we don't get to ask for and won't receive the opportunity to say, "Hey, God, I, unless you let me touch your side i I won't believe." But I think we still all need something that is miraculous in front of us that we can experience and say. God God had to do that. And that thing for us and for those in the world for the Thomases in this room and the Thomases in the world that thing is the church. Whom Paul says in Ephesians 1 at the end of his prayer is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Thomas wasn't wanting to touch the body of Jesus. Like he had been around the body of Jesus for, for years. He wanted to touch a resurrected body of Jesus, right? He wanted, he wanted evidence that God's power was real. He says, I want to touch the resurrected body. And friends, like we are that. And we are that for each other. And we are that for those on the outside looking in, wanting Evidence that there is God's power and that God's power is for us. We are the resurrected body of Jesus. We were dead. And we were raised. We were dead and we were raised. And the whole challenge is to just have the faith to live in miraculous ways. The faith to lean on God's power in such a way that it can only be explained, our success, our sustainability, it can only be explained by the fact that God is powerfully working in us. We, it, we, can, we can start out being a resurrected body and like manifesting the life of Jesus in our church. We can drift off into being just a group of people who like each other and share casseroles. Next week we'll talk about all this literature in the Bible that's written to the Ephesian church. You know, you've got the Book of Ephesians, multiple chapters in, in Acts. You've got First and Second Timothy written to the basically the senior pastor of Ephesus, and then you've got uh, the first letter of the churches in Revelation, chapter two, written to the Ephesian church. And Jesus says something to them, and it's very, very frightening in, in his address to them in the in the Revelation two. He says, "If you don't do what I'm asking you to do, I'm going to remove." My And what he means by that is, is I'm going to remove my presence. The thing is, is that God does that all the time to churches, but the churches keep on meeting and the buildings keep on standing and there's still money in the offering plates, on the pulpits, and there's still songs being sung. But that people have walked away from, decided they were above the basics, the gospel. We don't want to get there. So, so the challenge is to say, no, we are, we are this resurrected body in this world for ourselves, for, as proof to ourselves, as proof to our own struggling souls, as proof to the outside world. We are the evidence that God's power is at work. We are the resurrected body. But I, want, I, want you, I want you to notice one more thing. If you have your Bibles, or if there's a slide for this, I want you to go back to Ephesians 1, 22, and 23, that I just quoted a moment ago. He says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then you've got in the next chapter in verse 6, this stain. He raised us up with him and seated us with him. God put everything under Jesus' feet. Ephesians 1.22 He raised us up with him and seated us with him. Ephesians 2.6 We are seated with Jesus. Where are our feet? Our feet are with Jesus' feet. What is under Jesus' feet? All things. What is under ours? Can we act that way? Can we act with that confidence? Do we really believe it? Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The works that God has prepared for us are works that require God's power provided to us. The works that are prepared for us are the works that require God's power. So I was thinking about myself, and then I was thinking about you, and I was thinking, am I giving in a way that leans on the power of God? Am I I living in a way, am I serving in a way that leans on the power of God? Am I committed to acting like a resurrected person, a person seated with Christ, with all things under our feet? Am I loving in a limited way? Do my plans and do our plans as a church reflect a dependency on the power of God? Or do they reflect just good old-fashioned common sense, which is nothing to sneeze at? Have we, or are we in danger of forgetting that God has demonstrated his power to us in the most powerful way possible, by raising us from the dead. Are we in danger of forgetting that? <laughs> Absolutely, we're in danger of forgetting that. And we need to be reminded over and over and over again of what we were, and where we would be without Christ. Well, let me introduce communion. Guess what I'm going to talk about? I'm going to talk about remembrance. This is how key remembrance is. Jesus when he initiated the Lord's table he told us what to do while what to why we're doing this he told us how to think about this Paul recounts that in first Corinthians 11 he says for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he'd given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we know now freshly today why remembering this matters. Remembering Jesus death for us, His salvation of us, His raising of us, that is really, really a a massive power source for all of the Christian life that we're called to live. So today, I think, as we come, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're no longer dead in your sins and trespasses, but He has raised you up and you with Christ in the heavenly places, if that's you, I want you to come and participate in the Lord's table. And I want you to ask the Lord, would you help me to remember in a way that gives me power to trust you. Would you help me to remember in a way that gives me the ability, the faith to trust you? Let me pray for us, and then you we'll come, Lord God. We are so thankful for your care and your patience, um, God. I've been a teacher and I've been a student, and I'm not sure which one of those two, for which one of those two groups, repetition is the most tedious. I think I think maybe it's actually more tedious on the teacher. I'm so grateful for your never-ending patience. And it is not as if, Lord, you ever grow weary of talking about the gospel. You don't. You delight in it forever. Thank you for being patient with us and coming over and over again with these simple truths. Lord, help us never. Help us never. Help us never to rise above the gospel. Lord, help us also to take this truth and apply it like it ought to be applied. If God did that for me, He'll do whatever. He'll do whatever needs doing for me to walk in the good works that He has prepared for me in advance. Lord, give us faith. Give us courage. Give us confidence in You. Put our minds, Lord, realign our minds. help, Help our minds to be set. On spiritual things. And we see ourselves, as this passage describes, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. God, renew our minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.